Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists and a few friends of journalism talk about journalism. Um, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora uh, Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and for my sins I am the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology Sydney and my wonderful producer today is Michael Jones. Thank you Michael. Um, welcome to a Fourth Estate special edition and it's all about Journalism and the law. So the media has recently been on the wrong side of a number of high-profile defamation cases, and last week one of the largest again went against the media. This time the Daily Telegraph and its case involving Australian actor Jeffrey Rush. On Thursday last, Rush was awarded $850,000 in general and aggravated damages, and that's just the first part of the money awarded. The final amount for lost income could be far higher. This case raises a number of very significant issues for the news media and in turn the Me Too movement in this country and potentially elsewhere. So when the Daily Telegraph called Jeffrey Rush King Lear, that's L-E-E-R, and detailed allegations of groping and alleged inappropriate sexual advances during a production of that play at the Sydney Theatre Company, there was always only two possible outcomes. Rush's career was, well, as we know it, over, or the Telegraph was going to feel a lot of pain. So the latter has come to pass. Justice Michael Wigney, in ruling for Rush, described the Telegraph story as, quote, recklessly irresponsible and, quote, misleading, and called the actress at the center of the case, Erin Jean Norville, as being, quote, prone to exaggeration and embellishment. To explore this, we have two of the sharpest minds in the country. Dr. Karen O'Connell is from the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Peter. Uh, you're an expert in the law and its treatment of women. And before you, UTS, you were, worked for the Australian Human Rights Commission. Yes, correct. And returning to the fourth estate, one of our favourite guests of all time, Jacqueline Maley, senior journalist and columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and that company that's now known as Nine Entertainment. Is that right? Yes, please. We're no longer Fairfax. Hi, Pete. Hi. Great to Hi, have you. Karen. Hi, uh, we're, we're going to do this a little bit in two parts because um, being a hard-working uh, journalist, Jack Maley has to leave us and make calls about some other matter. Uh, so thank you so much again for your time. Um, a pleasure. Uh, so let's go and just paint the big picture here. The Me Too era has been, a, has been significant for the Western world, to, but it's fair to say that in Australia it's not had its real Harvey Weinstein moment, put it that way. I mean, Don Burke was long retired, and while the allegations and behaviour reported on, on about him were extensive and serious, it was not, as such, an unknown story to many uh, working in the media. Um, the Craig McLaughlin matter is now buried deep in the courts, and Geoffrey Rush, um, as we were just saying, has exploded in the Telegraph's face. Uh, Jack, to you, did the news media get this wrong? Did, they, did the news media get a bit too excited, just wanting to be a part of the Me Too movement? Yeah, it, go on, go ahead, yep. Yeah. yeah, look, I do I do think that's um, part of what happened. Um, you know, the the context of the story was that the Herald had broken, um, you know, those two big, really big stories. Like yeah. the Don Burke story was a big story. It was our first Me Too story. And the allegations against him were so extensive. Yep. There were so many women who came forward and they were so shocking. Um, and they involved quite a high level of um, 
sexual conduct that moved beyond just inappropriate um, staff or harassment kind of stuff. Um, and then the, there was the Craig McLaughlin um, allegations as well. So the Herald had had these two really big, great stories of high-profile people, and all of the Harvey Weinstein stuff was just breaking across the world. And, there, you know, the fierce sort of fights we were having on social media over, um, you know, the rights of the men in, in these cases versus the rights of the women and this, this flood of sort of female stories. So it was really, it was a huge story globally and I think that the Daily Telegraph caught wind of something that had happened at the STC, at the Sydney Theatre Company with Jeffrey Rush and, um, I mean, the, they, you know, the, there were various journalists sniffing around um, mm. this particular story mm. and they just wanted to publish something quickly. They did so on the basis of very little evidence. They didn't get a, They didn't get a statement from Rush they didn't get a statement from the, the alleged victim of the inappropriate behaviour. They got a statement. They sort of, I think, you know, got a statement out of the Sydney Theatre Company and that was what they went with for the story. And then, of course, they really overplayed the treatment of the story. So the headline that you just said, King Lear, um, just there's, there's sort of no, really no room to doubt there. Um, you know, you're really condemning someone as a serious major mm. sex pest if you call it, if you if you put them in give them that sort of newspaper treatment. So they overate the story and they didn't do the work. I mean there's there's really no getting around that. Like I, as a journalist I don't like to criticise other journalists because mm. like you don't want to throw stones but well, neither, I mean, neither, then, neither do I, but I mean as Wigney says, there is a level of irresponsibility here, isn't there? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And there's sort of two levels. Like I think the story itself didn't stack up um, and the journalist in question didn't do enough work. But also, I mean, the editorial treatment was really questionable, obviously, because it's cost nearly a million dollars or might end up costing them over a million dollars for this story. But also there was the um, ethical and sort of, you know, complex moral question of whether or not to out a victim who never wanted her complaint um, made public and who indeed has suffered terrible um, reputational damage as a result of the judgment that was passed. Yeah, I mean, let's go to that point. I mean, as you say, Erin Jean Norville uh, never wanted this to go public. Mm. She was, in effect, outed. Um, and then, uh, and then dragged through the, you know, through the situation as we all saw in the, in the court. Um, though, and uh, this has to be said, that outside the court the other day, she stood by her evidence. So, mm-hmm. yeah. where do we where do we draw the lines here as journalists? You know, we're serving the public interest, if you like. Mm-hmm. There is a, you know, I mean, I think you know, think let's all put ourselves in that position. You know, you, the public interest story comes up. There's this Me Too movement happening. Um, you know, you do want to, you do have a public right or public interest is being served by exposing uh, you know, such allegations on one level. Yeah. And so, in terms of uh, the act, so in terms of Erin Jean Norville, uh, she became what sort of collateral damage in that. Is there any justification for that? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really complex ethical question, and I think you can only answer it on a case by case basis because, as journalists, if we only ever reported on people who wanted to be uh, exactly. reported on, we'd never report on anybody, and so many um, important stories would, would go unreported. We always, we often, and you know, almost routinely report on victims of, um, if not crime, then of different situations who don't necessarily want to have their name up in lights or want to have their name splashed across newspapers. I think the context of the Me Too movement, though, is about women's ownership of their own stories and Mm. about how women are the ones who get to choose whether or not they tell their story and how much of that story they tell and who they tell it to. So that was the context. And I certainly think ethically in this situation, 
it's hard to mount a case um, that, you know, when someone's entire sort of career is on the line, um, when they're when they're sort of sizing themselves up against someone who is so powerful in the industry and so influential and really, you know, if they're on the wrong side, you know, if they're on the wrong side of this, they, they can suffer career damage really for the rest of their career and as she might well do. Um, then I think you would you would probably make a judgment not to not to publish. I would say. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go to Karen here because this is a complex mm. legal and ethical question. I know we're running against your your time. The clock is running for you, Jack. But I just did want to spend a bit of time just. You know, Karen's, I'm interested in your view about that. Yeah, it, it is a, it's a difficult legal question as well. Um, it's something that often comes up in sexual harassment because for all kinds of reasons, women don't want to speak up and they are worried about a backlash, justifiably. But uh, at the same time, if someone hears in a workplace environment about an incidence of sexual harassment, they also have some legal obligations to act on that. So it's something that comes up in that context as well, just women wanting to be silent. But then once they've spoken up at all, it, it takes on another kind of set of obligations. Mm, that's interesting. And, and just to give the Telegraph a little bit of you know fairness here, I suppose, I mean, it is very hard, and back to you, Jack, it's very hard to do this sort of work, uh, especially something like the Me Too stuff, but others, as other uh, situations as well, within the context of our defamation laws. We don't have a First Amendment, um, and we have to, uh, our defenses are, you know, sometimes proved to be inadequate. What do you think about that? Do we? Is this another uh, example where we need to do something about our defamation laws? Yeah, I mean, I would say yeah. I, I'm I, I feel quite strongly that our defamation laws are unnecessarily um, restrictive. Um, they're sort of complex. They're um, you know they're bitsy because it's, it's all sort of state governed, and it, they tend to be they do tend to be um, what do you call it interpreted by judges like quite adversely to media, if you know what I mean. So often. Often, you know, there can be a bit of a culture on, um, I think, on um, on the bench of being um, scathing of journalists and particular tabloid journalism. Um, so I do think they need a total overhaul and at the Herald we've indeed sort of had a campaign about that. I, we should say for the record that the, the Daily Telegraph didn't name EJ Novel um, in their original piece. Her identity was only known sort of widely publicly after, you know, she, she gave evidence for uh, the defence in the defamation case. But I think once once... Once that happened, everybody in her industry would have known who it was. That you know, the gossip was all right, so the sort of damage was done to her. Well, everyone knew who it was. Yeah, you know, full stop. Yeah, that's dead yeah. right. Before yeah. I let you go, I do want to just explore that in the journalism and the media bit a bit. Uh, Russia's barrister, you know, fresh from winning the case, accused the entire media, the entire media, of taking sides and making their own judgments in this matter. What do you think about that? Do you think there was a sort of a pile on? Um, look, I, it's so difficult to answer that because, I mean, I, you know, I write an opinion column and I had pretty strong views about it. Mm. Um, so I could be, I'm, he's probably talking about the likes of me. Um, mm. but I, I just don't see on what basis, uh, you know, particularly opinion writers, if you want to have, of course, reporting is one thing. The Herald's reporting was completely straight down the line. We have an excellent core reporter, Michaela Whitbourne. Mm. I saw the same thing in the ABC, I, you know. I, and the, all, all of the media outlets, for that matter, reported the case straight down the line because you have to uh, legally. The opinion writing and the columnising, that's sort of totally different. And I don't see why we wouldn't have an opinion and why we can't make public comment on something which is so significant, so um, 
pivotal to the conversation we're having at the moment about, um, you know, male privilege, um, the ownership of women's bodies, um, women being able to tell their stories of harassment and abuse. So it was always going to attract a lot of the public interest and, you know, we live in a free society where we can talk about what we want. Absolutely. I mean, do, you, do you think, and I'm going to go to Karen after this, um, I'm, I'm just a final question for you, then I'm going to let you go. Um, not Putting aside the defamation, there are, it seems to me anyway, uh, this is a tricky period for this relationship between the news media and the law. We have, uh, you know, we're soon to find out about the Powell matter and these contempt of court cases against, uh, is it 13 or 12 um, individuals or publications uh, in relation to the Pell matter? I mean, do you get the sense, or is it just us, or do we? is there really a, a sort of a bit of a pushback against the news media, a bit of a uh, the lawyers getting even kind of a moment here? I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I know I'm interested in your view. Look, we the Herald has defended a lot of... Um uh, well, a, a few sort of high-profile defamation cases recently, um, and we've had adverse finding, findings against us. Um, and there is definitely, I suppose, a feeling that defamation law is skewed too much towards um, applicants, or you know, too too much towards the people who are being written about, and not so much towards freedom of the press and the real and necessary need to write stories that are uncomfortable and that make powerful people uncomfortable. The, the big criticism that's always made about defamation law is that it protects really the powerful and the rich. That um, you know, if you can afford to silk up, you know, get yourself a top silk and um, and sue for damage to rep- your reputation, um, then you will. Um, and uh, the you know, as journalists, the people that we want to be writing about are the, are the rich and the powerful ones and holding them to account. Yeah. Okay. Jacqueline Melly, I'm going to thank you so much for your time. Um, read uh, Jacqueline Melly's words in the in the Herald, on the Age, online, wherever you get your great some, some great journalism. Thank you, and have a great day. Thanks, Pete. It's a pleasure. All right. Thank you. And and let's stick with this, Karen. Um, many interesting things about what Whitney said the other day. One of them was, uh, in essence, that he suggested that in a theatrical workplace, it was okay for a senior male actor to call a junior female one. Yummy and scrumptious. Is it okay? Well, context is important. There's no doubt about that. So um, it, it is true that in different workplaces, different behaviours are going to, you know, be more or less appropriate. What always strikes me about that argument is I wonder who actually has the privilege of letting their kind of sexual and creative energy flow. It does seem to me from the way uh, that the evidence was presented um, by Erin Jean Norville that at least her experience was that she did feel like she had to monitor and be careful and be aware um, so I think that while workplaces might, you know, have different sort of cultures, doesn't mean they're experienced in the same way by all participants. Mm, and and there was a power dynamic here, as you say, that Erin G. Norville felt that she couldn't respond in kind or whatever, and in essence, had to be on the receiving end of being called yummy and scrumptious. Well, I mean, we have to be a bit careful because, of course, the judge has found, you know, that she was yeah. not a reliable witness and, in fact, the weight of the evidence was on the Rush side. He had very strong witnesses on his side who were very consistent in their yeah. evidence. So putting aside the legal determination there... Okay, let's do so. <laughs> let's protect ourselves. Um, <laughs> putting aside that... Um, I, I still think there is a level of discomfort about some of the reasons that the judge gave 
for Erin Jean Norville's evidence not being believable, for her not being a credible witness. Um, and uh, for me, I felt as if there was a sense that he expected her to behave in certain consistent ways according to the behaviour that she had described sort of being inflicted on her. That I just think if you understand how harassment is experienced and you've read a, a lot of harassment cases, you wouldn't think that. You mm. wouldn't think that that actually, that sort of consistency is uh, kind of the expected response. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. A lot more to be said around that and when we can say a bit more too. Um, uh, let's, let's talk about the broader. Let's go back to Me Too. You've written that this judgment may have a chilling effect on the Me Too movement in this country. How so? Well, I'm worried that that's the case. I think from, uh, you know, when the Me Too movement started and was being discussed in Australia, there was a very quick shift to defamation. So in all of the high-profile cases, defamation was either mentioned or threatened or actually brought as an action in those cases. So very quickly, the conversation became about defamation, not about sexual harassment, and none of those cases have been brought as sexual harassment cases. No, that's right. None of them have been done. So why is that? Again, is this because the easiest and, if you like, the default position is to go to defamation? Well, I also think it's because people don't report here. So we already are working in a culture where people don't speak up, they don't report. We had a, a little kind of burst of activity, if you like, around discussing it that then sort of got quashed. But I think you have to look first of all at that very first step where we only have 17% report rate for incidents of mm. workplace sexual harassment. So people just don't want to speak about it. And I think that if you look at this case, I think a lot of people who've experienced harassment would look at it and say, well, that's why. Um, so, so because the, okay, go on. just because there is so much at stake. So, what needs to be done here? Well, this is the problem. You know, I think uh, you can talk about law reform, and I do. And the Australian Human Rights Commission are now holding a national inquiry into sexual harassment. But if people aren't speaking up in the first place, there's nothing that law can do. So uh, that's why the Me Too movement was so important because you need that very first step of people feeling free to talk about their experiences. The other way that impacts the law is indirectly. So it's a harder thing to evidence or to point to, but if generally as a society we understand more about how harassment is experienced, then that's going to filter through into judgments as well and it's going to filter through into who is seen as credible and who isn't. Do you think um, it's been suggested a few times and it's sort of bubbling away in the background that there's a case for some sort of overarching media freedom legislation that would enshrine, perhaps in a pseudo-First Amendment kind of way, the right of journalists to do their job? Mm. Well, look, in this situation, I, I also am not particularly in favour of the kind of salacious, you know, kind of scandal reporting of sexual harassment. So I, I think a bit, if you had a free-for-all in this area, I think the media would be very tempted, you know, to get their readers and their clicks by focusing on the sexual nature of the incidents, and that concerns me. Would I like more freedom in this area to speak up? Absolutely, yes. Uh, for journalists, do you think? Yes. Yeah, uh, okay. Well, you know, and generally I think it, it would be nice to have more freedom to, to speak in, with some limitations, yes. Do you, I mean, uh, just on that point about the salacious nature of it, I don't think we should get or forget that the Daily Telegraph is a tabloid middle to lower market sort of product and that's what it does yes. and uh, I speak as an editor I thought the headline was um, 
was very good headline, really, frankly. <laughs> it was a very good tabloid headline. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, what I'm talking about here is, you know, is a kind of a different world, if you like, Peter. So it's very optimistic. But it's the idea that, you know, surely at some point we're going to get a little more sophisticated in general even at, at that kind of tabloid level, in being able to see that sexual harassment is not just about sex. It actually is about equality. So and on that level then, do we need, uh, do people like you need to get into newsrooms around the country and sort of talk to people like me? Yes, please. <laughs> really? <laughs> the, yes, absolutely. Really? How, do, how do we make that happen? I don't know, Peter. How do we make it happen? <laughs> I mean, do, do, how much do journalists want to speak to lawyers? So we're not the most popular. Well, I oh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think journalists spend a lot of time with lawyers. And a lot of journalists were lawyers. True, fair yeah. enough. Well, well, lot, or, or did law anyway. Yeah, that that is true. I mean, there, there's no doubt there is a kind of uh, communication, you know, stream happening there. But I do think that um, the more that we can kind of make this uh, discussion more sophisticated, the better. I have to say I have been really impressed by the reporting of this decision. I think it has been very nuanced and very uh, thoughtful and very knowledgeable of the legal decision itself. People have read the judgment clearly and they've responded in a way that I've thought is very responsible and thoughtful. Mm, just on that point, uh, Rosemary Neal writing in The Australian at the weekend uh, made, um, you know, so offered an alternative view uh, to the chilling effect argument, which, you know, will remain to be seen, I guess, either way. But uh, her view was, that this is case is now becoming may well become a rallying point. Certainly in the theatre industry, she made note of several people of a different generation to Rush and his supporters, who came out and said things like they still stand by Erin G. Norville and such like. So there's a kind of generational thing here, and maybe, maybe again, speculation that it may become a rallying point and it may expose other things that need to happen. Yes, that is another prospect. And, you know, look, at, I think time will tell. I have been also been very struck by how strongly a lot of uh, women in particular who I've been speaking to feel about the decision and some of the comments that were made. And I think that is another possibility that it will be a rallying point. Okay. I just want one final legal question for yes. you, and it's, it's about defamation. Why is the truth defence seemingly so hard? I mean... Many of the journalists listening to this show would say, well, you know, we checked the story, we checked the sources, we're supremely confident, we're good to go. You know, what, what's, well, I what's mean, gone wrong the, here? In this case, and the judge actually referred to this in the judgment, that for a, a situation like this, it's interpersonal. It's, um, I mean, the judge used the word surreptitious, that sexual harassment is often surreptitious. It's happening mostly between a, a two people in a quasi, you know, private situation. It's very hard to prove the truth of, uh, you know, claims that you make about that when it is, uh, you know, at that interpersonal level and it's happening in private. Mm, okay, well, that's tricky. I mean, even though there were witnesses for her, obviously, in this case. Well, in the case, she had effectively one witness yes. for just for two of the incidents, um, and his evidence was not very strong. He didn't have good recall, and he, uh, you know, he he didn't present his evidence particularly strongly. Mm, indeed. Oh, well, we're not going to rehearse this case, sure. <laughs> because, um, and just in case Justice Michael Wigney's listening, I'm sure he's an avid <laughs> listener to the Fourth Estate. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to say? We're going to wrap it up in a minute, but is there something else that we want to take out of this? Uh, well, the the one thing we haven't spoken about is the judgment, as the uh, damages. 
damages. Yes, and, and aggravated and damages, way above the cap. Way above the cap. Well, you better explain that to, to our listeners, actually. Well, there's a cap of uh, around $400,000. Aggravated is if there's an additional element, you know, of maliciousness, etc., that takes it out of that ballpark. The judge did say in this circumstance that was warranted, and uh, that amount is very high. That's $850,000 before. That's just, you know, hurt and humiliation and mm. and uh, the the feeling impact of the reputational damage, the economic impact mm. of the reputational damage is still to come and is likely to be very high um, because the judge gave a kind of uh, algorithm for working out what that was going to be even though he hasn't yet done the sums. Um, and I would just like to compare that to sexual harassment payouts which are usually below $30,000 and are never in that ballpark and that includes cases where women have been sexually assaulted at work and have ongoing you know, disabilities through trauma and mental health disabilities as a result. Nowhere near. I mean, the highest payments for equivalent payments have been around $100,000. So we got our priorities wrong? I think so, yes. I think you're right. On that point, rather sobering point, but a very good point, Dr. Karen O'Connell, thank you very much for your time um, and uh, your erudition. And, <laughs> and uh, we'd love to have you on the show again because I know you're, you know, this is such an important issue and we shouldn't let it slide. Thanks very much, Peter. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening to Fourth Estate. That sort of wraps up this uh, special edition. Uh, it was recorded at the studios of 2SER and can be heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. And, of course, um, you can download it and listen to it at will many times on the podcast device of your, uh, of your choosing. Well, we'll be back for a lot more on the Fourth Estate very soon. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Now, thanks again to Michael Jones, the producer. And my name is Peter Frey. And thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.